My guest on the show today is Eric Kruger. Eric Kruger is a prolific author, public speaker, podcaster, YouTuber, video creator. The guy is everywhere and that's very intimidating to people like me who are in his industry. It also makes him virtually impossible to introduce. So I'll introduce him like this instead. Eric Kruger is also my friend. He's a person that I've come to know over the last couple of years as a profoundly authentic, accessible, interesting human being, genuinely committed to personal well-being, personal mastery, and to finding ways to change the world for the better. And he really means it. <laughs> Eric and I have been meaning to have this conversation for a very long time, and I thought it perfect to insert it towards the end of this Glenlivet original by tradition series. Today we talk about a variety of different things. We talk about Eric's approach to modern leadership and how he helps uh, company leaders, organizations, entrepreneurs, senior business leaders reconfigure, recalibrate their headspace around leadership and around change. We also spoke extensively about Eric's approach to producing content and I think there are some incredibly valuable insights and gems in the practical tips the approaches, the strategies that he shared, not just for individuals who want to build a personal brand or create the same level of impact and network and influence that Eric has, but also for organizations, for brands that want to replicate this kind of success. So often we see brands creating really beautiful content, but creating it once and never being able to scale it beyond that. And Eric shares some really great insights about how to avoid those pitfalls and mistakes. Yeah, this is a conversation that I loved. It's filled with a lot of insight. It's filled with a lot of great experience. And I trust that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. If you do, please go straight from this conversation and follow Eric online. He's at erickruger.com. He's all over YouTube, as I said. He's very busy on Instagram. He's got this great podcast with John Senna called The Expansive Podcast. And as always, your shares, your comments, your reviews are most welcome. But without any further ado, here is my friend, Eric Kruger. Eric, I can't remember a guest on the show where I had more trouble trying to figure out how to introduce them <laughs> or where to start the conversation than I've had over the last couple of days. You caused me undue stress. Um, but what I want to, maybe I'll start with a personal question. As the last person left in Johannesburg, I'm quite curious. You recently made uh, this immigration to Cape Town. Talk to me a little bit about relocating, why you did. Tell me about how it's impacted your headspace and yeah, sure. fill me in on the on the developments. Yeah, um, just so you know, I have the same trouble introducing myself. I also never know where to start, so it's a <laughs> it's a very common thing. Good, I yeah. feel better. Um, now. It's been one of the best things I've done, uh, hands down. And I think like what's been very obvious for me is just the impact of changing your environment and how that impacts everything downstream. You know, like all of a sudden, I'm a lot more active than what I used to be in Joburg. We have the ocean about eight minutes away in one direction. We have Halderberg Nature Reserve away in another, like eight minutes, another direction. So all of a sudden, I spend most of my time uh, playing squash, playing golf, going out with my dogs, going to the beach, and I'm struggling to get back into the rhythm of work. That's the, like that's been my biggest challenge because we also we moved in <laughs> December. So like you in December, it's holiday mode. That's what you get used to. Of course. And then you get into the new year and you have to like get back to work. And all of a sudden there are all these distractions around you all the time. 
But it's been absolutely incredible. Um, why are you still in Joburg? When are you coming? I mean, surely it must be soon. You know, just, just once I want to have this conversation with somebody where they go, we've moved and it was the worst decision <laughs> we've ever made and we hate it and it sucks. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I love Johannesburg up until quite recently. I had the excuse of my business being based here and Anna's career being based here. So it made a lot of sense for us to be in the city. And of course, as you know, uh, some of my family live in mm. Cape Town. So I think Anna and I've uh, thought about living in Joburg versus living in Cape Town less. And we've got more into the headspace of thinking about living in Joburg and living in Cape mm. Town. So how, how do we make sure that our lives in either city are as mobile and agile as possible so that we can hypothetically hop on a plane without being too concerned about what's happening on either side. And that certainly has become the way that we've approached the mm, situation. Like and it. so my excuse is that I now have the best of both worlds. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the city. It is it is in my blood and, and difficult to ignore. And yeah, it's it's certainly been a, a big part of my my career to date. Mm. So difficult to divorce myself from the reality of what makes Joburg Joburg and how it plays into my my thinking. Listen, I totally get it because I'm a Joburg boy as well. And for the longest part, it was such a part of my identity. Like it felt like, you know, mm. from the days that, uh, I mean, I'm thinking back to like 27 dinner, like years and years ago, right? It all felt like the hustle. Like that was what Joburg was all about. It's like, it's the hustle. It's where you like, it's where you network. It's where the energy is. And I don't know, maybe like because of the pandemic, it feels to me like it kind of lost that. And I'm like, well, if it if it doesn't have that energy, then what is left? Because it definitely doesn't encourage the lifestyle that Cape Town does. So what is left then in Joburg? And I think for many people, it's their people. That's a, a good enough reason for them to stay in Joburg. Absolutely. But outside of that, yeah. I'm like, what else? Yeah. So when I think about Joburg, and I don't want to get too much on a tangent on this topic, but it is quite mm. an interesting topic uh, because when we talk about what it is to love a, a place, it's often quite intangible and difficult to quantify exactly yeah. what it is that we care about. But I, when I talk to people that don't live in Johannesburg or that are from overseas about the city, the thing that I always say is that it's unique because of how decentralized it is, right? Joburg is the biggest city in the world that's not aligned to a body of water uh, or not constrained by... Uh, Cape Town is the classic counterexample. It's a highly constrained geographical location. Mm. It's got a mountain on its bum and, a, and an ocean in its face, and it's sort of sandwiched in the middle of the CBD, mm. of course. But that forces a certain type of just practical design, but also lifestyle design. Whereas with Joburg... There is a lot to this place. It's just kind of spread mm. out and unconstrained and decentralized. And, and that's okay, but it also makes for, you know, sort of puts the work back into the ball back into my court, right? I've got to make that existence. I've got to make uh, those experiences. I've got to find those places. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that they are less um, centralized, yeah. but maybe I'm overthinking and making excuses for a city that I shouldn't mm. be making excuses for. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think an existence in Cape Town primarily is certainly on the cards for us, but it would be a big mm. move. I think, it um, is. for Anna and I, we're very much, yeah. um, embedded in this place and, and its people. Yeah. yeah. Listen, all I can tell you is I absolutely love being here. So we're in Somerset West. We're not in Cape Town in the city itself. Yeah. We're in Somerset West and I've just, I've loved every single aspect of being here. And funny enough, now I'm like flying to, to Joburg quite a bit. And like for March, mm, I'm mm. traveling to Joburg every single week for talks. Oh, yeah. wow. 
So it's it's quite funny because like you move away, nice and I get to, to see to go things back face to face again, right? Oh, dude, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and uh, so it's less studio time, more in on stage. Yeah, can't wait. So for people who aren't familiar with your work, talk us through what types of talks you're delivering, what kind of work and facilitation are you busy with clients on? Take us through March and give us a sense of what Eric's day-to-day will look like. Yeah, so primarily, you know, everything runs for me through the filter of how do we modernize leaders and teams and um, Mm -hmm. what that kind of looks like isn't as much the the leadership action side of things. It's not like I don't try and talk to people about how do we do remote work and all those kind of things. I try and talk to you about how do you as a leader develop a more modern mindset, um, whatever that might look like to you. How do we incorporate different ideas, different mental models, different filters so we can analyze our world differently, we can make decisions differently, and then we can ultimately show up differently. So that's the primary filter, I guess, through which I do everything. The talk that I'm still delivering the most at the moment is all around how to be dangerous, which is mm-hmm. always interesting to me because when, I, when I'm when i speaking to a client, I'll say to them, you know, I have three talks that I can can kind of modify for you. One would be around the leadership manual. Um, one would be around like sort of the, the modern mindsets that leaders need to acquire. And then the third, and I kind of put it in as a wild card, is how to be dangerous. And then every single time people's eyes light up and they're like, well, that's the one we want to do, which is also strange in corporate because like, Dangerous isn't a word we like to use in corporate. So uh, that's actually the, the Maybe talk that's that I've been exactly the most. why they want to do it. Huh? I think yeah. I think that's a big part of it. It kind of jars you a little bit, you know, makes you mm. sit up and pay attention. So I'm I'm still delivering that talk quite a lot, and obviously the book is coming out in April. So I think mm-hmm. then I'll be delivering it even more. It, it kind of feels to me that that should be coming to a close and a new chapter should be starting. But the reality is the book coming out, uh, it's really just getting going. And then I, I guess on top of that, there's a bit of facilitation that happens around these talks. So just going deeper into what does it look like for your team or your organization to be dangerous. And then the smallest part of what I do is that I do some con- coaching and consulting. I used to have quite a like a decent sized executive coaching practice, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to scale that down in favor of doing more speaking engagements and more facilitations. Uh, why the shift from the one to the other? I think from a scalability point of view, that's that's one aspect of it. I'm really over the idea that I'm like always just trading time for money. And, uh, you know, if you go back into my past, I used to be a physio and it felt like it was the same thing, you know, like it's always just trading time for money just doesn't work. Uh, so that's one part of it. The second is that I, I just really enjoy the speaking component of what I do. And I enjoy it a lot more than the coaching component. What What coaching does for me personally is it helps me to understand the world that my people function in, the world that leaders mm. function in. So I get to see the world through their lens and I get to then go back and create content based on that and look for ideas based on that. But outside of that, I don't feel like I get a massive hit from it. I don't feel like I'm, you know, it just doesn't feel true to what I want to do. So I still do it because I think it's important for me to have that grounded understanding of where people are coming from. But I'm just yeah. trying to do it less in my business and move more into speaking, move more into the international market with my speaking. Um, And that's kind of my focus. So for people who are in the industry, in the speaking, uh, facilitating, coaching industry, I imagine they feel similarly to how I often do in that you're a profoundly intimidating component of this ecosystem because your ability to produce content is astonishing. 
right? So between uh, the expansive podcast, the books that you're publishing earlier this year in partnership with Sasfin, you produced your 2022 leadership manual. And I think you publish one of those every year, which is disgusting. Uh, and then you're doing the speaking work, you're developing new talks, you're busy with Think Week as well, which is secret. How do you think about prioritizing all of these projects that you are number one, creating, but then also kind of growing and facilitate? How do you, how do you think about prioritizing your time? You know, um, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I actually feel like I'm producing too little content at the moment. And like that was actually Great. the... Great, that makes me feel amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, awesome. reflection that I was, I was going through yesterday. I was like, I, I just don't feel like I'm I'm putting enough content out there if I look at my sort of weekly schedule, you know, we have the expansive podcast that goes out, then I have a video going out somewhere, and then maybe like there's like one or two LinkedIn posts, and it just doesn't feel like structured and yeah, like created in a way that and it's building momentum. So actually, like a big part of my thinking has been how do I become better at creating content on a more regular basis so I can actually grow some sort of a following off of that, and not necessarily for my own brand, but for for the show or for the um like when i think of um your podcast for example right like it's you want to grow an audience for mike stopforth but also for the podcast as a brand so sure i'm trying to not just grow my own following but like some series or some brand that's that's separate from me so modern breed is kind of a an, an attempt to do that um that's launching on monday but i guess where my thinking at the moment is is for a lot of the content that I create is I'm looking for blockbuster content. I was reading this thing a while ago and it kind of changed the way that I looked at content where the guy said, you know, we live in a world where there's just, there's such an over supply of content and we have, and especially now with TikTok and reels and um, shorts, all of this like short form content, it, it gives you a bit of a hit, but it doesn't really like inspire action. It doesn't necessarily help you to learn to do new things, right? Like it's just, it's so fleeting. It's so quick. And so you can spend your time creating that kind of content or you can spend your time creating content that actually builds a library for you over time. And ideally, of course, you want to do both. But I think a lot of where my thinking is, is how do I create content that really stands out and that people can see you've put effort and time into? And because of that, it has a bit of a longevity to it. So the leadership manual, for example, uh, took me about two months to put together. We spend hours and hours researching all the trends in it. That's going to carry me for about a month. And we've been able to do mm. PR around that. I was on TV for it. I was on radios for it. So like there's more gravitas sure. behind a piece of content like that versus a YouTube short or an Instagram reel. So I, I think a lot of my time is spent thinking, how do I create blockbuster content? Something that's interesting, that stands out, that creates more word of mouth versus things that are fleeting and that, um, won't add to my body of work over time. You won't be able to discover it again because it's already gone. So that's why a lot of my focus has been on YouTube, for example. Um, that's why I'm doing things like the leadership manual. That's why I'm doing things like books. Those things have staying power. Mm. Yeah, there's an interesting conundrum that results from digital channels and kind of widespread access to digital channels and this really low incremental cost of content creation and content consumption is that if there is snack size, fast food style content everywhere, which there is, and it's really easy to access and consume and kind of binge on that as a, as a user, 
one would think that that would dismantle or reduce the need for deeper, more intentional, more long form, more academic, whatever it might be. And yet it's almost done the opposite where it's Mm. created such a deep need for better journalism, better research, better thinking, better analysis. And and there are people that I think are intentionally seeking that out. Um, I find myself uh, gravitating more towards longer articles, articles that'll take me a good half an hour to read, really mm. good. Uh, and I don't mean just a good book that's been produced. I'm going back to classics. I'm going back to content that is, as you said, meatier, heavier, is going to force me to expend some cognitive calories because there's you know we get into the trap of thinking that we're thinking but we're just kind of consuming information at a at a rate that our minds would maybe never ever uh, supposed to and Mm. that has certainly a a degree of fallout to it i think sometimes we're actively getting stupider even though we think we're consuming more information yeah um i actually call it thinking in glances we, we look at content, we glance at this content, and then we just move on with getting with our lives. And we, mm, mm. we never stand still long enough or digest something for long enough that it actually changes how we think and how we do things. Mm, and yeah. so you have the illusion of learning that happens, but real learning isn't happening. And one of the worst things that can happen for us as individuals moving forward is that we think we are learning, but we're not. That we think we're adapting, but we aren't. So mm. we, we need to be very careful and catch ourselves when we are thinking in glances. And actually the solution is that you slow down and that you spend a bit more time with meaningful content. I think that's why there's been such a explosion regarding newsletters because kind of yeah. the main function of many newsletters is to curate content. And I know that's become a big thing for me is that I'd rather subscribe to these newsletters that curate content for me than spend all day going through the algorithm just seeing what it's going to produce. Sure. Because um, that way it's also... It's giving me content that's outside of my bubble and things I might not interact with. So I think curation over time is going to become more and more important. And hopefully when people slot into that and they, they see the value in engaging with content a bit more, you know, they slow down, they actually like learn new things and it, it changes how they do things. All right, a quick break and play. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope you're enjoying our Glenlivet Original by Tradition series. A wise man once said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. For me, this is what being the original is really all about. It's a mindset. It's forward looking. It's progressive. It's about not backing down to conformity or accepting mediocrity. It's about questioning norms, breaking assumptions. It's in the way that we combine resources creatively and use our talents in ways other people hadn't imagined. Ultimately, originality is really about people who are determined to do things on their own terms, redefining the way that we think about things like culture and success and achievement in the process. Originality is all about how we draw on our roots and show up winning again and again and again. A big thank you again from me to the team at Glenlivet for making these conversations possible. If you're enjoying the show as much as I'm enjoying recording it, please don't hesitate to share it with your network. And now, back to the podcast. 
I want, to, I want to dig a little deeper into your insight around newsletters because this really was the start of your journey into influence and leadership and, and having a, essentially a public profile and developing the, the Eric Kruger brand. And that was the newsletter that you started a couple of years ago when you were still operating as a physiotherapist, really. Mm. Can you talk us through a bit of that journey, that experience and, and, and what you learned through it? Yeah. So when I graduated from physio, I realized I didn't want to be a physio. Uh, <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like four years of my life and a Zuma like, year yay. as well. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I realized, you know, I need to do something else. But I was like in physio. I, I knew it. It was the easiest way to make money. So I started going down that path. Um, mm-hmm. Led me to starting a private practice. Led me to being the head of rehab for a step down facility at some point. But while that was going on, I was trying all these sort of side hustles all the time. And the one thing that I ended up trying was creating a website called Better Man. And it was really just like saying, well, you know, I want to be a better man every single day. And I'm going to mm-hmm. share what that journey looks like. And people can follow along if they want to. But there was nothing really more to it than just that. I think the simplicity of the message rallied a lot of people around it. And men yeah. resonated with it. They were like, well, that's so simple. Like, I also want to be a better man every single day. And so... Very quickly, there was a community that was forming. People were um, engaging with the content. And I thought, well, how do I then put this on steroids? How do I get more people involved? And I remember like podcasting, videos, interviews. I tried everything. And then one day I just thought, well, how about I just send a daily email that's very short and to the point. I'll sign it off with Acton on Verbo, which means actions, not words. And it's all just about, you know, trying to get people to do instead of read or consume or like just go and do something that's like going to progress you a little bit forward today and i started writing that and it just took off and within about two or three years i was sending an email to about eighteen thousand people every single day it was phenomenal because i mean like purely organic growth huh? it was it was partly organic growth and then i was also very like big into digital marketing and at that Mm. point i mean if i if i knew then what i know today um i would have just killed it with more money but back then i was getting like a subscriber for like 50 cents um on mm, facebook mm. you know like per lead it was like it was dirt dirt cheap so i did a lot of that uh but i also had you know different people come on so i think the i think rich was on at some point john Sonne was on so like they all helped to kind of spread the word even further and then because of that people would find the newsletter and like it was also like it was an interesting newsletter in that it it had word of mouth which was quite interesting. Like I remember going to events, people would like speak about the newsletter on stage. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So yeah, so that grew to 18,000 subscribers. Um, and then ultimately I ended up turning that into a book. Like the hundred and I think I wrote about 850 emails over three years. And then I turned the 160 best of them into a book. There's something to be said and maybe I'm hoping you'll challenge me on this point. And, and I also hope that you won't hear what I'm not saying here. This is not, this is not intended to undercut the value of what you created, but there's something to be said for the value of just consistency. Because I think when, and this, this goes for individuals, brands, entities, organizations. When we think about creating content, putting something out into the world, whether it's a book or a podcast or whatever it is. And I think a lot of people have ambitions around sharing stories and ideas with the world. And I think often they should. There's some people who I wish wouldn't, but most <laughs> most people should. We overanalyze to the point of paralysis 
what the perfect version of that should be. We, you know, like, how will I make it sustainable? How do I ensure that it... And I think what you are so good at doing that many people probably don't realize is your secret is that you you just do it. And it might not be perfect the first time around and it might not be refined and it might not be... But you get it out there, you start it, and then and then it's about repetition. It's about consistency. And I use Joe Rogan as, as the, the quintessential example mm. of this. I, you know, Joe Rogan is a public figure and a public intellectual, not because he's necessarily the best person for that job. And I know that particularly now, opinions on Joe are split. But what you have to give him credit for is his commitment to consistently putting out the same thing over and over again, getting progressively better at that job, and I think appreciating and leveraging the compounding effect of doing that over and over again in the same way that if you invest five rand in a bank account every day over 50 years, that's going to compound into an Mm. extraordinarily valuable asset. And I think when it comes to content, we undervalue the compounding component and we overvalue the quality and the production component. Your thoughts on that? For sure. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What pops up for me is that idea of like maximum possible pace versus maximum sustainable pace. And, you know, mm-hmm. very often what we try and do is we we go all out, you know, we like we put everything into our content and then no one sees it because yeah. initially like you haven't earned anything, right? And it's the most yeah. depressing thing. And then you realize, well, I, I just need to do that like 150 or 200 more times. And then it might like turn into something. But to do that when no one is watching is very difficult because you are pouring hours and hours and hours into that and nothing happens, you know? So I've always found that the best thing to do is actually just to set a schedule for yourself and then do it and then make it. Like there's this thing in SNL, a Saturday Night Live, where they said the show doesn't start because it's ready. It starts because it's 9 p.m. on a Saturday night. Yes, yes. And and that's kind of the mantra that you have to follow is that every week at Thursday, I have a, a publishing for my video and it needs to be like, it, it just goes out when it's done. Like it needs to be done by that time. There's no other way. Um, and I think that was what was so great about the daily email for me is that initially it was me having the consistency in writing it because I enjoyed it. At some point there was a switch where there was an expectation from the community that every morning at seven o'clock, there's going to be this email that's going to be in my inbox waiting for me. And I think that's like, that's where we want to get to is like your community in a way is holding you accountable. And I remember a few mornings where, you know, something would go wrong with my scheduling software, like it wouldn't go out on time, whatever. And I'd get emails from people saying, listen, are you okay? You know, like what's happening? And like, I was like, wow, like you really can't miss a beat. Like people are going to notice. Um, I was on Emma Chamberlain's channel. Uh, do you know Emma Chamberlain? Mm Mm-mm. She's a, like also like a massive YouTuber. I think she has around 12 million or so subscribers. And okay. So just like, like you. you basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I think I'm 12. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she was uploading quite frequently for a while. And then uh, now she hasn't uploaded for two months or so. And I went on the channel yesterday and all the comments at the top are like, where are you? Are you okay? What's happening? You know, and I think that's what you what you ultimately over time with consistency get to is that your consistency is a promise to your audience that I'm showing up every single day here for you. And if you mm. can do that for long enough, then eventually they start showing up for you and they hold yeah. you accountable and yeah. they care about you and they want to make sure that you're okay. 
So it becomes a, that, that becomes the, the best possible scenario, I think. But it starts with you being consistent when no one is looking. We would see this happen with brands a lot in Cerebra, where they would get really excited about a digital channel or a digital opportunity, and they would create a beautiful piece of content, and they would invest a lot of time and energy and thinking into that product, and it would get published, and it just they would they would not see the uptake that they hoped for. The and then because of the negative experience of doing it once, would go okay, well the that's why we shouldn't invest in this channel or in this project or in this approach. And, and, you know, the, I think there's two interesting things that come out of that. First of all, knowing when you have already, as you said, a gravitas style idea, something with weight is figuring out how to put it into small constituent parts so that you can extend the, the, the lifespan of mm. that, that idea or that position on a topic. And then the second thing I think is just, you know, kind of over committing to consistent, Republishing, repurposing of that content in interesting ways, almost to the point where you're embarrassed about it. That's how you know you're in the right space is when, when you've mm. done it that much. Um, mm. That's something I know I've struggled with a lot and something I, I really, I learn from and, and um, I respect uh, in the way that you do your work is just, I probably out of arrogance will produce something, send it out there and then fully expect it to do extremely well and then get dis- disappointed when it does. But I actually haven't done the work to reinforce that output uh, in the market. Um, so yeah, work to do there. I think what, what a lot of creators and creatives miss out on is that we spend a lot of time thinking about the creative and not enough time thinking about the distribution. Mm. You know, And mm. we actually do ourselves a disservice in that way because there's so much love and effort that goes into producing the content, but we don't, don't give it the best shot possible um, for it to yes. reach the kind of audience that it needs to reach. But it is, I mean, it's a very frustrating process. You know, uh, like YouTube has now been my main focus, I'd say, for about two years. And growth there has been incredibly slow. And then yeah. you look at these guys, you know, I always, like Richard always says, his, his YouTube channel is the loneliest place on earth or something <laughs> along those lines. But when you look at all the big guys, you know, they'll say to you, if you haven't produced at least 100 to 150 videos, you haven't even started yet. And then yeah. you think of yeah. like, Wow, like to, to get to that point, because a video is an incredible amount of uh, time that is invested. It is the scripting, it is the recording, it is the editing. And I mean, if you want to play, I think overall content is just being labeled up all the time. People are producing better and better content. So it feels to me like the bar is getting higher and higher. So if you mm-hmm. want to do something, which also it isn't, we can talk about that as well, but it feels like you need to produce at a higher level. So what that means is more B-roll, more sound effects added, better text effects. And so like it becomes this like big, big thing to put out a piece of content. And then again, like it gets like 50 views. And then you need to be okay doing that for 100 to 150 videos before you can say like, I've given it my best shot or not. Yeah, yeah. And then at the same time, you know, um, Casey Neistat always says like, you know, the best phone is the one or the best camera is the one that you have available. And I think he's always trying to say like, you don't need all the fancy gear and the fancy equipment and you don't need to spend like hours and hours editing and whatever, whatever. Like if you can just tell a good story, something compelling, then like something raw is actually perfect. That's why TikTok mm. does so well, right? Because it's often so raw. So like there's, sure. you know, there's just no one right way to do content. There's just, you have to find what works for you, what speaks to your audience, where they are at. But all of that, all of that requires experimentation and requires you to be consistent in, in 
sort of that evolving clarity that comes over time. So I want to get back a little bit to modern breed and modern leadership. And obviously, as you know, this podcast centers around the idea of the intersections between what's really interesting in the world of leadership, what's really interesting in the worlds of technology, and then how those two things together have an impact on, on the planet that we are looking after. What do you think are the, the most important characteristics? If a, if a leader of an organization, a business, a CEO, a senior decision maker is wanting to declare themselves modern and relevant, what are the most important considerations or characteristics that they need to be exploring, nurturing, learning, growing, in your opinion? Yeah, so there's a few. The first one is curiosity. And, you know, I think we, we hear this all the time, but it's, it's really important that we cultivate like an interest in what's happening in the world around us because it's so easy to be overwhelmed by it. And everything, at least to me, uh, feels so foreign these days. Like It's like when there's something new launching, it's not just a little bit out of your wheelhouse. It feels like it's way out of your wheelhouse, you know? And so it can be easy to shut yourself off from that. But it's really important to be curious enough just to go and explore things that are like outside of your comfort zone in that way. And what then goes hand in hand with that is your willingness to change and your willingness to change on multiple levels. Willingness to change your mind about, you know, beliefs that you've held tightly before about the way that you looked at the world, that you are willing to let go of all of that in order to adopt a new way of thinking about the world, a new mental model uh, to believe something new. And of course, with that, it means that you do things differently. You change your behavior. And, and perhaps that becomes the sort of central theme for modern leadership is that you are extremely adaptable. You move effortlessly in new directions because you never get so attached to one way of doing things. You are always fluctuating between exploration and extraction. So like in the leadership manual, I speak about this trade-off that we all have to deal with every single day that we want to extract value. So it's actually called the explore trade-off. I changed it to extract explore. So it's just to what extent are we extracting value from what we know is working versus exploring new ideas, new technologies, new frontiers. And it's important for us to balance this because it's not like one or mm. the other, you know, like, mm. uh, but, but we do get caught up. We do get stuck. And I think where we typically get stuck is in extraction mode that we just try and get as much value from the business model that is working at the moment or the employees we have in the business instead of going outside and saying, well, now that there's a new world, which other mental model, which other uh, business models might work uh, now that we can hire from anywhere in the world, are we doing that kind of thing? So we have to find the sweet spot between extracting and exploring. And then I think the third thing is really this idea of anti-fragility. I think we've briefly spoken about that because at some point that was even going to be the, the name of the leadership manual as well. And anti-fragility just says, you know, there are many challenges. There's chaos. There's disorder. Those things aren't going away. So how will you respond to that? And if you are anti-fragile, it means that you get stronger because of these things. You get better because of these things. And I think that's an important mindset for leaders for modern leaders to embrace is that none of this is going away. In fact, it's just going to be coming at you more frequently and with a bigger magnitude. So how will you not only prepare for it today, knowing that it's inevitable that these things are coming around, but how will you, once it hits you, how will you then respond to it so that you come off it better on the other side? 
So it's interesting that the first two characteristics that you spoke about are modern in the sense, and that's why I like the, the idea of modern leadership, because it can be a little bit, one could be tricked into thinking that there is a kind of a, a, a novelty or a fashionability around the style of leadership that we're talking about. And, and really what we're saying is that certainty can be a crutch. Certainty can be a cancer even in an organization. The confidence to say, I'm not sure and I don't know, might be the modern leader's greatest strength. And there is a there's a paradox in that because we're talking about the vulnerability that comes from saying or, or, or that's inherent to saying, I'm not entirely sure. And if we think about the type of leadership style that dominated business in the 80s and 90s, it was very much the opposite. It was like, I know where we're going. I know how to get there, my way or the highway. And, and to the credit of those types of leaders, they were prepared to share some of the accountability for being that sure. But I think what, what I'm hearing you say is that the level of unpredictability and uncertainty that we're exposed to means that you have to take the position of curiosity in order to be able to do the part that you spoke about at the end, which is act in an anti-fragile or resilient or adaptable way. Am I hearing you right? Yeah. Um, if I had to summarize that even further, I'd say that I think the defining characteristic is that leaders are able to operate with nuance that, yeah. you know, there was a time where uh, things were quite black and white in certain ways. And yeah. now we don't have that, but the space between black and white isn't gray. The space between black and white is incredibly colorful because between black and gray are the most interesting opportunities that we've ever had. Like there are more options, choices and opportunities than ever before. Mm, mm, and sure. so actually in the space between black and white, it's this incredible spectrum of color and it's important that we then recalibrate how we think, feel, and act so we can take advantage of the opportunities in this beautiful spectrum. But that requires us to have nuance, to know that what we do today won't be relevant tomorrow necessarily. Like we might need to change how we do things tomorrow. That the right thing today might be the wrong thing tomorrow. That today I might need to extract Tomorrow I might need to explore that today yeah. I might need to be a transformational leader that I'm, I'm selling the vision. I'm getting people on board. I'm getting them excited about where we are going, but tomorrow I might need to be a bit more transactional in nature. There's this, um, saying that says sell in the morning and tell in the afternoon. And you know, when we think, for example, of transformational transactional leadership, what we're really saying is that there's a fluidity that leaders need to cultivate. There's a nuance that this, this, specific situation right now requires me to inspire the people this situation right now because there's chaos everywhere requires me to tell people let's go in this direction and i might not be like it might not be like you're not authoritarian in that way but you're just providing a bit of guidance for people in that moment and transactional isn't wrong and transformational isn't the like be all and end all you need to be able to fluctuate between the two so it feels to me like that really is the defining characteristic is that we're okay with nuance. We become creatures of nuance and we appreciate it. And I think in that is also what you were saying that, you know, sometimes I don't know, but saying I don't know means that you are, you are acknowledging the nuance and that you get to use your team around you to help you figure out what the right thing to do uh, would be in that situation. 
we, we spoke about thoughtful and impactful pieces of content, even by prolific content producers early on. And I know both of us respect and admire uh, Shane Parrish's work at the Knowledge Project. And I shared with you before one of the shows that Shane did that has without a doubt been one of the most impactful in my thinking. And it's specifically on this topic of what it means to be a transformational leader and specifically how that speaks to the mindset of the individual. And that that might even be the highest, the highest version, <laughs> the most established or most mature version of adult mindfulness we can get to. Uh, and and she, uh, Shane, uh, not she, he had a guest called Jennifer Garvey Berger, who speaks about this idea of the self-transforming mind and how difficult it is to attain that and how much work goes into being prepared to think in a nuanced and potentially even conflicting way. She adapted Robert Keegan's work. If, if the listeners haven't heard it, this is one of the few things I feel very confident uh, sharing or, or, or advocating for. But yeah, Jennifer Garvey Berger's uh, work on, on self-transforming leadership and her interview with uh, Shane Parrish are phenomenal. But I wanted to ask you quickly, because I mean, you are a source of inspiration and wisdom and knowledge for so many people. Who do you look to? to inspire and inform and motivate your thinking? What sources of, and they don't even necessarily have to be people or content. It could be something quite di you know, different to that. What, what inspires your thinking or your view of the world more than anything else? You know, um, ideas, I, I guess. I guess the best answer I can give you there is that I love ideas. I love wherever I can find them. And I, I guess that's why I'm, I try and be quite prolific in my reading, um, diverse in my reading, diverse in the podcast that I listen to, the YouTube videos I watch. I'm always just like, I'm just interested in finding the next idea that inspires me that, like if you if you look at my whiteboard to the side here, it's just, it's just full of ideas. All these like one sentence, uh, uh, one word ideas, transitions, hero's journey, the Red Queen effect, uh, the adaptability paradox. Like that's actually what inspires me is just to go and look and find these gems. There are certain people that I end up listening to a lot, uh, but I often listen to them not necessarily just for the content, but for the way they communicate things. Because mm, I, I, sure. that's the journey I'm on is to always just be a better communicator. So I love listening to, for example, Jordan Peterson. He's also he's a very um, polarizing character. But the way he communicates, the way he shares ideas, I think is absolutely phenomenal. Um, he also speaks about being dangerous. So I think there's a, mm. a part of that that inspired the book as well. I have, you know, Nassim Taleb is lying on my desk. Uh, one of my favorite authors that I look up to a lot is Robert Greene. I have his entire mm. collection of books. But again, like, I, I look to that more because I'm interested in, in how do they tell the story? How do they communicate the idea? How do they, mm. how do they convince people to adopt a certain way of doing things, of, of thinking about the world? I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer, though. No, that's the answer. Um, okay. It doesn't have to be satisfying or not. Okay. And I think uh, what's an important takeout from that is that thinking in a way that produces great ideas or distilling existing ideas to find truth or applicability for your own life, that in, is in and of itself a skill. I think a lot of us pass by great information, great insight, great ideas without necessarily internalizing them or having a mechanism for capturing them. I know 
Richard Mulholland, who we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, uh, is very deliberate about that. Like, how do you capture and cultivate ideas um, and build them into your way of thinking? And I think that's certainly a, a key part of your way of working. Um, mm. Essentially, you, you, you're a chef. You're taking ideas in the form of ingredients, combining them in really interesting new ways, adding flavors, adding a, a different perspective, and producing an outcome that people haven't experienced before. Or maybe it's an idea that they're familiar with, but not in this way. And that's a, that's a beautiful art form in its own right. Uh, mm. Because, you know, I might not like chickpeas in one form, but if you put them in a curry, I might be really interested in them. And having the insight to be able to do that and to figure out what people need um, to be able to consume that thing in an interesting new way is very much a skill that I think can be developed, exercised, nurtured. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, the, if, between your wisdom around how to aggregate and organize ideas and your wisdom around how to turn those into content, there's some very powerful insight there that I think is full of gems and you know, just practical tips uh, for people that are listening uh, to the show today. So I want to ask you... Um, the two questions that I've asked every guest uh, in this series at the end of the, of the show, um, they're two questions I ask myself reflectively quite often. And I didn't prime you on these on purpose, but I know that you think uh, on your feet very, very well. So well, we'll find out. The f <laughs> it's a matter of time. The first one is, if you could go back in time, and certainly not with a flavor of regret, with a flavor of, of ambition and hope, if you could go back in time to 18-year-old Eric Kruger, what one sentence of advice would you give him? Uh, so if you literally had the ability to go back today, meet with him and utter one sentence, what would it be? And then the second one is, uh, if you had the ability to introduce a book or a publication, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a book, could be a film, into the South African education system as required reading, required consumption for young South Africans, what one publication would you insist on on inserting so yeah what would you uh, tell okay. 18 year old eric yeah um take all your money and buy bitcoin okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah immediately <laughs> immediately <laughs> do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars <laughs> um, and quit and be happy forever i, I guess the sentence that pops into my head first is be okay with being you over the years i you know if I reflect back, I can see the, where people have shaped me for better or for worse. And I'm actually, I'm busy making a video at the moment around labels and that labels are a good thing, right? Like they help us to communicate who we are and what we do. But often these labels become a prison, you know, mm. like when, when I was a physiotherapist, it helped me to have that label so that, you know, you can come to me for treatment. But when I was trying to transition out of physio into something else, that label was something that really held me back. And it wasn't just me. It was uh, like my internal dialogue around like, I'm a physio, I'm a physio, I'm a physio. Who am I to speak on stage, etc. Like that was one part of the battle. The other part of the battle was the people around me knew me as a physio. Their label for mm. me was physio. So mm. me getting on stage was jarring for them. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you on stage? You're a physio. So... So labels are, are useful to a certain point and then they become a prison. And what I've, what I found is over time, you know, you often just take on the labels that other people give to you. 
And yeah. I used to be ex- ex- like extremely experimental in nature. I would always try out different things. That's how I ended up finding Betterman. And even in Betterman, I was like experimenting all the time. That's how I found the daily email. But then at some point, people started telling me, don't experiment that much. You need to focus on one thing and just do that thing over and over and over and over and over. And I feel like in some ways, it severed me from my creativity and from something that was very natural to me because I felt like I was looking at these successful people. They were telling me what to do. I needed to do that. And like today, as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to get back to that state of experimentation and trying new things and discovering that creativity. So I think... And, and it, you know, when you're young, like you're very impressionable for those things. So be more okay with being you feels like a, a an important thing to do. Mm. That that would be the first one. Secondly, it's funny because like I, when I was reading my study, I put out all the books that have had the biggest impact on me over the years. I, I, I was thinking, by the way, that I'm missing your book. When is that coming out? I uh, am going to take the fifth on that one. <laughs> um yeah, I have. Okay. Wait, 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 I've actually got my microphone is balancing on the old book. Yeah, there's the old book. You can have one of these. <laughs> I've got like 10 left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need one of those then. But also, when is the new book coming out? Oh, God. Soon. Uh, it's okay. coming soon okay. to the listeners and sponsors of the show. <laughs> so, um, there are two books that I, that I always keep coming back to. I don't know if they would be like education system. I don't know to what extent they influence learning, but I think they teach extremely valuable lessons. The one is Seth Godin's book, The Dip. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I reread that book every year. It's the book that I've gifted the most all around the idea that hard things take effort and take time. And you are always going to encounter the dip. Will you be willing to push through it? Because if you are, mm-hmm. then amazing, disproportionate uh, gifts Benefits await you on the other side. side. Yeah. Yeah. But often you might not be in a dip, you might be in a cul-de-sac and you need to know the difference. So that's one thing because I feel like, you know, we all encounter the dip. And these days, I think we encounter the dip even sooner because the world is so complex, so uncertain. You start something, you're going to go into the dip immediately. And so you need to be okay with knowing how much time it's going to take you to get through to the other side. So I think a lesson in perseverance there. And then secondly, a, a book that I reread every year as well is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. And again, it's not a book that, you know, it's, it's not a, a fiction, a nonfiction book full of like business lessons, but there's so much to gain from that book in exploring, in, in trying new things, in leaving behind what is known, in pursuing the things that are meaningful to you, but also realizing that often the things that you really care about, that you, that is most meaningful to you is actually already there. And, I reflect on that often that we are always in pursuit of something new, but very often your life is already, you know, it's already incredible. Like there's already so many things that are valuable to you in your life, but you overlook that because you are looking to the other side. And Mm -hmm. so that book is in some ways also a reminder that your biggest treasure is already with you. uh, But are you able to see it? So I think like those two books feel like important reads to me. So, Eric, you spoke about the importance of labels, and that's actually very pertinent to me. I've I had a great conversation with a dear friend of mine earlier this week around the well, end of last week around the power of labels uh, in our life. So it was uh, that hit hard, and um, I have been in this industry long enough to know quite a few people that wear the moniker of professional speaker or motivational speaker, 
And almost without fail, my experience of them has been that they are kind of one version of themselves on stage, almost like an actor. And then there's quite a different version of them behind the scenes. And you are one of the very rare, very valuable exceptions to that rule in the sense that the Eric that you get in front of the camera, the Eric that you get on stage, the Eric that you get on the page is the Eric that you get on the golf course uh, <laughs> or over coffee. And that is, I think, an enormous uh, testament to your character and to the validity of the ideas that you produce because they are grounded in real experience, in real practice, in the um, commitment to personal mastery that I think is so much a part of your way of living and an inspiration to the rest of us. So thank you uh, on behalf of those of us that benefit greatly from your work. I, I, I wish there were more uh, like you. Thank you so much. Um, listen, and I just want to tell you, it's actually, it's it's a very interesting day today being on the podcast with you because I remember the first time we met, you won't know that, but I met you when you didn't meet me was at 27 dinner. And I think yeah. I've told you the story before, right? Yeah, with so Marnus, yeah. Ma Marnus and I used to like go to all these networking events and 27 dinner was the one that we always looked forward to. And when was 27 dinner? This was like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, it spanned quite a long period of time, actually. I think from 2005 all the way through to probably 2015, 2016. Okay. I think, mm. yeah, I probably would have been there around 2012, 2013. And I remember us going to these events and always like you had Mike and them in the front and we were like kind of skulking in the back and we would go to these <laughs> events and we'd be like, we're going to go network. And then Manus and I would just chat to each other all night long. We wouldn't like speak <laughs> to anyone at all. But we always looked up to like the Mike's top fourths of the world. You know, like you guys were doing incredible things, hosting these events, building big businesses. And it's cool to all these many years later, finally be able to uh, be a friend and be a peer so yeah, it's it's a it's a great moment for me to be on the podcast with you. Thanks for that. Oh, you're very kind, Eric. Uh, I sort of feel like the the emphasis has has flipped on that one. But yeah, <laughs> I uh, may, maybe I need to start uh, running events again. <laughs> what the message in that is, but I deeply appreciate that, uh, my friend. Um, hope to catch up next time I'm in Cape Town. Let's see if we can get a surf in. Look after yourself, and yeah, all the best for the projects that you're going to be launching in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure. Thanks, brother, and to you. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.